you have your Bibles, I invite you to the Gospel of Matthew. For the United States, uh, conscription, that is, the, that is a, a military draft, um, has only been legislated six times, if I'm understanding correctly, in the history of our country. And um, of the six times that it was legislated, there were, I think, three or four of those times that it was actually enacted or enforced. What interested me in thinking about this is the degree of preparation. You know, it's one thing we're familiar with uh, a a volunteer military that uh, joins, receives training, and then when they are through with their training, uh, get sent out into various responsibilities, some into combat, and uh, some in other, other circumstances, other situations. What interested me is the times uh, that uh, the draft was instituted uh, and uh, men were forced into military service um, by, by the requirement of law. And what is the difference in those circumstances? Um, World War I and World War II, if you study the history and the drafts that took place during those times, there, there was a fairly significant time for preparation and training of, of recruits and draftees. However, uh, in other circumstances, it was not quite so, uh, not quite so well prepared. In 1966, during the uh, conflict of the Vietnam era, it is my understanding that the United States Marine Corps reduced the length of its boot camp from 11 weeks to 8 weeks, uh, as well as increasing the size of the depot battalions in order to meet troop demands. And so, so young men who were of the appropriate age to be drafted would come uh, into a, uh, a military boot camp, and in a reduced amount of time, not the normal amount of preparation, but a, a lesser amount of time in order to get them into the field more quickly, were, were pushed through their training, pushed through boot camp, and then quickly sent into situations where they might very likely see uh, combat. However, the shortest time in which untrained men had to prepare themselves for combat was during the Civil War. Uh, A few weeks after Gettysburg, Lincoln called for the second Union draft of the Civil War, and he called for 300,000 men uh, for nine months of service with quotas from each state remaining in the Union. Lincoln gave the states 11 days to fulfill their quota. And so within nine days, on August 13th, the first new regiments began to march for Washington, D.C. So can you imagine that is nine days' time from the period of, from, from the moment uh, that induction is, is legislated, that men are going to be drafted into the military, from that moment, nine days later, you're likely seeing combat. 
Now, you may be there thinking like me, yeah, these are men, though, that lived in a different time with more of the frontier age, or at least closer to the frontier age, and, and uh, they were already using their, uh, their rifles to provide for their daily meals and all of that. And I would say there might be some legitimacy to that, but still, for untrained men to go into combat from the moment they find out nine days later they're 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 marching can you imagine what it would be like to be called up guys and in a little more than a week find yourself marching to war this is what i think of when i think of matthew 28 16 through 20 Matthew 28, 16 through 20, we know this as the Great Commission. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's bow our hearts for a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we are grateful that you know all things. Your planning is according to your will. And Father, we have no doubt that you know what you're doing. Lord, would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to believe in you? And as you used the disciples to begin your church, would you use us to continue the work of your kingdom in this world? And Father, we pray these things would be done in your name and the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Easter is a wonderful time of celebration. We're still singing about Easter and still celebrating Easter. In fact, the, uh, the early church fathers would say that every Lord's Day, every Sunday is a miniature Easter celebration because the day of worship transitioned from Saturday, the last day of the week, to Sunday, the first day of the week. Only one thing can explain that transition, and that is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But as wonderful as it is, it makes my heart tremble to think of the demands and the responsibilities that were soon to be placed upon the followers of Jesus in order to continue His work. They did not know it at the time, but we know that they had a mere 50 days, 50 days from Easter to Pentecost, 50 days in which to be ready for that time when they would go out of the upper room and begin to present the gospel message to those that were assembled in Jerusalem and hear it. 
In light of this, as we read what has happened to the followers of Jesus directly after his his, uh, crucifixion, we read how they all forsook him and fled. They were scattered about. Uh, There were those that when they did gather, they gathered in hiding in an upper room, afraid that the ones that came and took away their Lord would soon come to take them away. And it almost seems to me as if they're starting over again. They're starting from scratch. In fact, I think we get indications of this in the Bible when we read, I believe it's in the Gospel of John, I think chapter 21, uh, that uh, a few of them are gathering together and one is saying to another, I'm going fishing. Not sure what's next for us. Don't know how, you know, and understand that this time they've already seen the risen Lord. But they don't know what's next. They don't know what they're supposed to do next. So they're doing just what they know. They're going back to fishing. Luke records in Acts chapter 1 that they still did not seem to understand fully God's plan. Because you recall in Acts chapter 1, as they're gathered on the Mount of Olives and Jesus is there, this is just before the ascension, just before Jesus is going back uh, to to his Father, and they are asking, uh, the disciples are asking Jesus, Lord, is this the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? They still did not understand. And so beginning today and, Lord willing, following through to Pentecost Sunday uh, for about the next, oh, well, 50 days, (laughs) 40 days now, uh, I want to talk to you about going from the empty tomb to the upper room. And in spite of the fact that it seems the disciples were still so lacking in their understanding of what they were to do that uh, we read in Acts chapter 2, the powerful beginning of the early church on the day of Pentecost when God's Spirit was poured out. And while everything was not perfect, the book of Acts is clearly the ongoing work of Jesus in the world through the followers of Jesus as they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So somehow or another, between the time of the resurrection and the day of Pentecost, some things fell into place and something clicked so that God's work was able to continue through his followers. In looking at this story and the first thing that I think... uh, we see in the gospel accounts the first thing that needed to take place in order for the disciples of Jesus to go from the empty tomb to the upper room and be ready, be prepared for the work that Jesus left them to do. The first thing was simply that they needed to believe again. They needed to believe again. Now, I understand these are people who had seen the risen Jesus. Yet there was so much that they did not understand, and what they had believed about Jesus before his death and resurrection was not anything like what God had in mind. 
There needed, something needed to happen to restore their faith, their belief in Jesus as the Messiah. I don't know if you've ever been in a position to have your expectations disappointed. I was thinking about this and <clears throat> remembering some of my cousins. You know, cousins are, are usually some of your first uh, and, and best friends and playmates, and I, my family is no exception. Um, and we, we enjoyed life together. We still enjoy getting together, my cousins and I, but they were, some of them were ornery. And uh, I remember one of my cousins um, offering me a glass of Sprite. And it was just nothing but water in a, in a glass. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this. If you've not experienced it, you won't know what I'm talking about. But you have, you know, your taste buds have memory. And if you receive something, you have an expectation in your mind of what you're about to get, what you're about to taste. And you're all prepared for that drink of Sprite, and what you get is water. There is something about that. Even if you like drinking water, there's something about that that it just, bleh, it's just not what you expected. And it seems to me that that's sort of the position that the disciples were in. Even though they knew that Jesus had risen from the grave, they uh, they begin to see that their expectations of Jesus were not fulfilled in the way they thought. They're, the messianic expectations of the Jewish people were, um, well, for one, they were looking for a king from the line of David, a king from David's line. Scripture records this clearly in the Old Testament, in the Prophets. But in their minds, this would have meant a king like David, who would have been a political king and would have given them freedom from Rome, freedom from the oppression that they were experiencing. Deliverance from Rome, not a spiritual deliverance, the kind that Jesus actually came to deliver, not a spiritual kingdom. You remember when Jesus was on trial uh, before Pilate, he said to him, my kingdom is not of this world, else would my servants fight for it. But as far as I know, it's very interesting that, that Pilate was the only one that heard that clearly from Jesus, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate seemed to understand, he was ready to release Jesus. He knew that Jesus wasn't really a threat to the, to the political uh, machinations of the day. Yet the followers of Jesus, the ones who had spent three years following and listening to him teach, didn't get it. They were looking for an earthly kingdom. They were looking for someone to be the rescuer of Israel. And while... His words, the teachings of Jesus, and in particular, the miracles of Jesus gave them reason to believe the crucifixion of Jesus was no part of their image of the Messiah. In fact, you may recall that when 
Jesus began to tell his followers that he was going to go to Jerusalem and there would suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders and die. That Peter rebuked him and said, no, no, this is not going to happen to you. That, that can't happen to the Messiah. So I want to look at just a few uh, particular people that had their expectations of Jesus and needed to believe again. They needed to believe again. The first one we might expect uh, is Thomas. Doubting Thomas, we call him. You know, if we look back at Thomas and his relationship with Jesus, his interaction with Jesus, we can see very clearly that he was loyal to Jesus. It wasn't a matter of him uh, failing in, in being loyal to Jesus. If you go to John chapter 11, there you read the story of Lazarus and how Lazarus became sick. And uh, the, the sisters, Mary and Martha, sisters of Lazarus, sent for Jesus and, and said for him to come. And Jesus delayed his coming for about four days and then finally said to his disciples uh, that it's time to go and wake up Lazarus. And the disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll recover. He'll get better. But Jesus then told them plainly, this is verse 14, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Now, the, this, was, this was during a time in the life of Christ when he had been keeping his distance from Jerusalem and from the temple because there was danger for him there. Going to Bethany where Lazarus was would bring him into close proximity to Jerusalem and to the temple and, and would very likely put him in danger. And so uh, the disciples knew this. And so Thomas, verse 16 of John chapter 11, Thomas said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. That was, that was Thomas' expectation. He knew. They, they knew the danger that they would face. So we see Thomas was, was loyal to Jesus, but even though he was loyal to Jesus and, and very likely had some faith in him as Messiah, he was uncertain of the outcome because here he's, he's yeah, we're going to follow Jesus wherever he's going to go, but, but we're anticipating we're probably going to die along with him. He's uncertain of what the outcome is. Have you ever in your time of following Jesus been uncertain of what the outcome would be of following Jesus? I've been there. Thomas was another one who did not understand what Jesus was all about. In John chapter 14, Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going away and uh, uh, I will come back again so that you can follow me where I'm going. Verse 4 of John 14, he says, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas did not understand. John chapter 20 we read that account of Jesus interacting with Thomas. You know, we mentioned this to you last week, that Thomas missed the gathering of, uh, of the disciples the first time uh, that Jesus appeared to them. And in John chapter 20, verse 24, 
the second time that Jesus came around after his resurrection, uh, Thomas said, you know, before Thomas had said, unless I see the, the nail prints in his hand and put my hand in his side and feel that, that scar, that wound, I will never believe. Thomas was determined not to be taken in again. He had found that the Jesus he wanted or had believed in was not the Jesus that he got. So he said, I'm, I'm not going to be fooled again. But eight days later, his disciples were inside again, gathered together, and this time Thomas was with them. And Jesus appeared and said to them, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Thomas began to believe again. Another is Peter. I'm sure you'd expect to hear about Peter in a message like this, talking about disciples who need to believe again. Peter really was a true believer in the best sense uh, of the term, as far as we read the stories of the disciples. In Luke chapter 5, we read the account of Jesus calling some of the disciples to follow him, and it's there in Luke chapter 5 that he records the story of how uh, Jesus tells the disciples to launch out into the deep and cast out your nets for a great catch of fish and and Peter says to Jesus Lord we fished all night and have caught nothing nevertheless at your word we will let down the nets and they go out again and you know the story they catch it just this great catch of fish and Peter comes back to Jesus and says depart from me for I'm a sinful man O Lord and Jesus says fear not from now on, you will be a fisher of men. And Peter became a true believer in Jesus Christ. In fact, Matthew 16 records that incident where Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Not sure who all of the disciples responded, but there were those, some there that said, well, Lord, there are some who say you're Isaiah or one of the prophets. Others think that you're John the Baptist come back from the dead. But Jesus said, who do you say that I am? You know, friends, that's what really matters. Not what other people believe or think about Jesus, but it's what you think. It's what you believe about Jesus. And Peter was the first one to speak up, and he said, you are the Christ of God. You are the anointed one, the Messiah. And Jesus said to him, blessed art thou, Simon, son of Barjona, Bar son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but you've, been, you, you've received this revelation directly from the mind of God. He was a true believer. Yet there was something about Peter, I, I don't know that I've necessarily put my finger exactly on it, um, I'm not sure I really want to, want to accuse Peter of being a power seeker, someone who pursues power, yet so much of what we see that seems to be what Peter was interested in. 
You know, I mentioned that passage in Matthew 16 where, uh, where Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. But right after that, also in Matthew 16, is where Jesus began to tell the disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the, of the religious leaders and then be killed at their hands. And it was there that Peter began to rebuke him. Because you see, a, a crucified Messiah, that was one with, with no power, that was one who could not deliver them uh, from the oppression that they were experiencing. Um, Peter said to him, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter was not interested in a Messiah who was going to be crucified. We see also in John chapter 13 the account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And that was literally the role of a slave or a servant. And when Jesus came to Peter to wash his feet, Peter said, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. You're not going to serve me like some common slave. Peter could not imagine Jesus taking that role. We also read about the arrest of Jesus when they come to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, Peter, you know, he's, he's ready to defend Jesus. He's going to go, he's going to fight. And he pulls his sword and cuts off the ear of, of uh, Malchus, the uh, servant of the high priest. And I don't for one minute believe he was aiming for an ear. I'm fully confident he was going to cut that guy's head off. You see, Peter was a, a, a true believer in Jesus, yet he was not interested in the same things that Jesus was interested in. In fact, that's what Jesus told him when Peter rebuked him about going to the cross. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He, that, that means adversary. He called Peter an enemy. He said, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Peter was one who I'm sure desperately disillusioned and discouraged about Jesus needed to believe again. And then we have that tragic account that Jesus foretold of being denied three times by Peter. Can you imagine? I, I, know, I know what it's like to fail Jesus. Do you know what it's like to fail Jesus? You don't have to raise your hand unless you just want to, but I, everybody knows what it's like to fail Jesus. When you are in a place where you really want to live for Jesus... You really want to please Jesus, and yet because of your humanity or your temperament or what have you, you find yourself in a difficult position, and in that difficult time, you do not have the strength or, or the power or the spirit within you to stand up for what you know is right, and you crumble under that pressure, and that's exactly what Peter did, and he denied his Lord, and then he went out the scripture says, and wept bitterly. But Jesus knew Peter's heart. And one of the first messages to the disciples that was sent 
by the angels through the women. The women were the ones who were the first to witness the resurrected Lord, and I believe this was a message. It was the angel that gave the message, but I believe it came directly from the Lord Jesus. The angel said, you go back and tell my disciples and Peter what you have seen. Now, some people say that was because Peter wasn't really truly a disciple because he had denied his Lord. I don't believe that for a minute. I believe it was simply because Jesus wanted to make sure Peter got the message that he was included. Even though he had failed under pressure, he was still a follower of Jesus. And Peter needed to believe again. Have you ever found yourself in that place where you felt like you could follow Jesus, you could stand? You know, the Apostle Paul tells us in the Corinthian letters, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And very often that moment when we think we ought to be the strongest, we find ourselves under pressure and we crumble under pressure and we fail Jesus. And our faith is damaged and somehow we need to believe again. Another one quickly is Mary Magdalene. You know, Mary Magdalene is that one that the Bible tells us was delivered from seven demons. There, there, there are actually two references to this in Scripture, but interestingly enough that we don't read the story. I, I wondered, why don't, we, why don't we get the story of Mary Magdalene? We don't, we don't know the backstory. We don't know what happened. Just all it says is she's introduced as Mary Magdalene, and it says she's the one from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. We know really very little about her other than Luke chapter 8 tells us that she was one of a number of women who were a part of the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, if you will, and they helped to provide for the needs of Jesus and the other disciples. Luke chapter 8, verse 2. Now, there is some speculation. If you go to, to one chapter before, Luke chapter 7, you read there the story of the sinful woman who comes into the, to the home of, of Simon the Pharisee, and uh, she is there in that setting. She's, uh, she's let her hair down. Now, we don't understand our culture, the significance of that, but in, in Jewish culture, a woman did not let her hair down. A woman did not uncover her hair in, in the presence of a man. It was just, it was not something that was done. But in that setting, she was there, she let her hair down, she anointed the feet of Jesus and then wiped his feet with her hair as an expression of her love and appreciation. I'm not sure, but some people think that that may have been Mary Magdalene. There's no firm basis to say that. That's just, that's just speculation. But what we can say for sure is that Mary Magdalene is one of the few people that witnessed almost all of the events surrounding the crucifixion, including the crucifixion itself. 
She was present for the mock trial of Jesus. She heard Pontius Pilate pronounce the death sentence, and she saw Jesus beaten and humiliated by the crowd. She was one of the women who stood near Jesus during the crucifixion to try and comfort him. The earliest witness to the resurrection of Jesus was Mary Magdalene, and she was sent by Jesus to tell the others. <clears throat> And although this is the last mention of her in the Bible in John chapter 20, she was probably also among the women who gathered with the disciples to await the promised coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1. And what she demonstrates is that Jesus is still her Lord. John chapter 20, verse 11 through 18, we read that account to where she's looking for Jesus and can't find him and finds this, this man that she does not recognize thinking that it's the gardener. She says, tell me where you have taken my Lord. Did you notice that? I never really noticed that. But even when she believed that Jesus was still dead, she was still calling him her Lord. Mary Magdalene was someone whom Jesus had done so much for that she could not imagine life without him. She could not imagine him not being her Lord. And so even in death, he's, she's still proclaiming his lordship over her life. She doesn't understand everything that's happened. She doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. But she still is proclaiming his lordship. <clears throat> I have this print hanging in my office, and some of you will probably recognize this, the painting of the two disciples on the Emmaus Road that we read about from Luke chapter 24. And of all of these, this is probably my favorite account of the, the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. These were two men who, like all of the other uh, disciples, were discouraged and disillusioned and dejected. They had expectations about Jesus and what was going to happen. And the story in Luke chapter 24 says that Jesus himself drew near, but they did not recognize him. And Jesus said to them, what are you talking about? as you walk along. And they stood still looking sad, the Bible says. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened? And Jesus said, What things? And they said, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped. Have you ever been in that position? We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. They had dreams that were unrealized, expectations that were not fulfilled. 
and they were disillusioned, and they needed to believe again in Jesus. This began for these two men when the Bible says Jesus drew near. Jesus himself drew near. What a wonderful, wonderful statement. Friends, can I tell you, there may be times when you feel that the Lord is far from you, but Jesus draws near. An old songwriter said, standing somewhere in the shadows, you'll find Jesus. He's the only one who knows and understands. Standing somewhere in the shadows, you'll find Jesus, and you'll know him by the nail prints in his hands. Jesus drew near. Then he began to open to them the scriptures to give a fresh revelation of himself. You see, their understanding about who Messiah was and all that Messiah was supposed to accomplish was totally, uh, totally warped, totally skewed. And then Jesus, it says, he began to, to speak to them. He said, verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And as they drew near to their destination, Jesus acted as if he would continue to go farther, and they, they persuaded him to stay with them. They said, it's getting late, stay with us, come eat with us. And as they broke bread together, their eyes were opened and they saw Jesus. And then he disappeared from their presence and they spoke to one another and said, Did not our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures while we walked by the way? And they turned right around and went back to Jerusalem. The place they were trying to escape from, something had changed, and they joined the eleven there and told what had happened and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And then what's interesting, I'd never really picked up on this before, is that Jesus came then and did for the other, for the other eleven disciples exactly what he did for the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. Look at Luke chapter 24, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And, said, and Jesus said, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. What do you do when people think you're a ghost? Well, you say, here, look, touch, see my hands, my feet, touch me, feel me. And then if they're still not quite certain that you're for real, you say, well, do you have anything to eat? And then they, knowing that spirits don't need to eat anything, began to believe again in Jesus. In verse 44, Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He did for the eleven exactly what he had done for the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. <clears throat> you see, Thomas was loyal to Jesus, but uncertain about what the outcome was going to be. 
uncertain if following Jesus would take him to a place he really wanted to go. Peter was faithful, totally faithful to Jesus, but found that when the pressure was on, he could not stand up under that pressure, and he crumbled. Mary Magdalene was the only one who really held on to her belief in the Lordship of Christ. Then we see the the two on the Emmaus Road, these men who had their expectations so high but found that they were dashed. And all these needed to believe again. Has Jesus ever turned out to be different from what you expected him to be? Has God ever allowed your life to go in directions that you could not imagine this really happening? And you begin to question, God, do you really know what you're doing? Are you really who you say you are? Can I really trust you? Can I really believe in you? And that's what this is about this morning. There may be some here who would say, you know, I've never really believed in Jesus and I need to believe in him. But there may be others, I suspect, who, like me, have found yourself in positions where I, I think I've been in all of these places. I've, I've experienced those times when I really wanted to be loyal to Jesus. I wanted to be true to Jesus, but the pressure of life, the pressure of the moment was more than I could handle. There were times when the expectation of following God's will and doing what God wants you to do, you, you have this mental misconception that that means blessing and, and prosperity and goodness, and that bad things won't happen and tragedy won't come into your life. And then you find out that there are times still when doing God's will and following Him does not mean that you'll always be free of trouble and tragedy. And I think what I want to say in closing is is simply this. You know, Jesus to those disciples, he, he helped them understand who he was in light of the rest of Scripture. But I still don't believe he answered all of their questions. He did not answer all of their questions. He gave them just what they needed to help them believe that Jesus really was who he said he was. And God is not ever going to answer all of our questions, unfortunately. There will always be some things that we don't understand. But let me encourage you, friends, this morning, if you are in a position where you need to believe again in Jesus, to look to Him 
as the crucified and risen Lord of glory. He is alive. All power is in his hands. And though we may not understand, he is leading us and this world to a glorious future, a culmination of his kingdom where all will be well and all of the wrongs will be made right and everything will be restored. Praise his name. Let's stand together.